It's showtime! It's showtime! It's showtime! Ladies and germs, it's showtime! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Showtime Movie Podcast. This is episode 18, and thank you, as always, for listening. Last week's episode focused on the Academy Awards. And there, like I said, when we talked to Quentin, the Academy Awards are my favorite movie event of the year. I mean, they are the, the biggest movie event of the year, as I said last episode, but... I love watching. I watched with my parents and my cousin and my brother and sister, and it was a pretty fun time. Got to interact a lot with people on Twitter, and, you know, a lot of people had opinions on the broadcast itself, on Jimmy Kimmel, on everyone, you know, all the various speeches. And, you know, if I had one complaint about the ceremony, it's I, w- I would like to see them kind of do less dumb skits. Not that I think that the, you know, them getting celebrities and going into the movie theater and shooting hot dogs at people isn't entertaining. It is entertaining in, in, a, in a fashion, but I do think that it would be nice to take away some of those skits and give a little more time to the people who won Oscars, right? I mean, think about it. If they had gotten rid of that skit, right? There are other entertaining things that happened in, in the broadcast. If they had gotten rid of that skit, every other person who won an award, these life-changing, career-defining awards for some people, they would have gotten time to speak, right? And I just think that's kind of a shame that they play off these people. You know, you you or other people may not care who wins sound editing or film score or what have you, but I mean, I care and a lot of other people care as well, and especially those people who are winning. And I think for these people who are winning these fantastically difficult to achieve awards, you should give them a few more minutes to speak and thank the people who helped get them there, right? I don't know. That's just my big pet peeve about the about the Oscars. I, I think they could do with a little more, you know, relate, r- relating to those people, I guess, right? Because, I mean, they, they let the actors who win their awards rattle on and on and on about God knows what and about, like, the environment and about all these issues. And not that's not to say those aren't important, but it's not cool that they get to do it and the other guys don't get to do it, is, I guess, is, I guess, my point, right? Everyone should get to do it equally or everyone should get cut off, frankly. I mean, and I know, and I know they know that Frances McDormand winning the Oscar is more attention-grabbing than you know, Dunkirk winning best sound mixing, right? But at the same time, I just don't necessarily think it's it's fair, and I think those guys should get their due as well instead of getting played off. I mean, there was that moment, I forget who it was specifically, but someone, it was two people who won the award for one of the smaller Oscars, and they the second person started to speak, and they started to play him off, and then the guy said, this is for you, like my dead mother, and boom, you heard that orchestra just stop playing right then and there. They kind of went up and then boom, cut the music right Im- immediately, right? So they wouldn't have to do that if they give those people a little more time to speak. I don't know. It just seemed kind of amateurish and it, it's not cool, right? Like just give them just give them a, a minute extra and I think it'll be fine, right? I mean, yes, you have to set a limit somewhere, but those people's limits are so short compared to the rambly speeches we hear from everyone else that I don't think it's necessarily fair. The Oscars did have a lot of good things of this year. Tiffany Haddish and Maya Rudolph, that was pretty cool. I... I really enjoyed them, as I'm sure many people did. Uh, the the jet ski thing I thought was pretty funny. And Mark Bridges uh, won that. Yeah, that was that was pretty entertaining. That was a better kind of show wide 
skit that they managed to actually accomplish and pull off this year versus things like when Neil Patrick Harris had that like letter in a box or whatever. I don't know. Those there were some dumb ones over the years, but I thought that one was relatively entertaining. It wasn't like the the, the game a game changer, let's say, but it was still pretty fun. You know, uh, there are some good moments. Uh, the, the musical award performances that kind of happened sporadically throughout the show. Some of them were pretty good. Some of them were were not. You know, I was actually shocked that the Coco one was actually not that entertaining to me. Honestly, I was a little disappointed with how the Coco Remember Me performance turned out, considering it was a fantastic song, the movie was fantastic, and it actually won the Oscar, right? So I don't know. Maybe Maybe I'm just being a little nitpicky. Uh, as for my own predictions, I did pretty well at 19 to 24. Not a lot of surprises this year. Um, the ones I got wrong, best live action short, best documentary short, best documentary feature, I got best original screenplay wrong and best visual effects wrong. So those are the five I got wrong, 19 out of 24, right? So best original screenplay did go to Get Out, which was a fantastic surprise. You know, you, you know people often say, I don't mind being wrong if blank happens. That was one of them. Honestly, it was so cool to get out one. Three billboards, not that I would say got snubbed. I mean, Francis McDormand and Sam Rockwell both won the acting awards. I mean, whatever, right? But at the same time, I'm kind of shocked that it took home so many or so little Oscars as it did, right? That was kind of surprising. And uh, best visual effects ended up going to... Blade Runner 2049, as opposed to War for the Planet of the Apes. From what I've been told, I guess there's a lot of background visual effects in Blade Runner that helped make the atmosphere as moody as it ended up being. But I don't know how much of that is visual effects and how much of that is the directing of Denis Villeneuve. So I can't speak to whether or not it did not deserve it. I just I just thought that War for the Planet of the Apes, considering the motion capture and the artistry that went into making these men look like apes uh, i i thought that was more impressive to me but then again maybe i'm just a layman who knows right but regardless that was a pretty fun year i'm excited to next year uh, i'm sure the incredibles 2 might win uh, best animated picture i like i like i like ta- speculating on the best animated picture honestly i i do and uh, we had another oscar surprise at work like many of you know i work at a radio station here in toronto the sports Night 590 the fan and we had a pretty cool guest, J. Miles Dale, native of Toronto, from this very area where the studio is, actually. He brought he came into the studio to, you know, shoot, shoot the shit on some sports. He came in right after the Raptors beat the Mavericks the other night, and he brought in his friend, Oscar, with him. I got to actually see and hold the best picture Oscar for The Shape of Water. That was one of the coolest things I've ever seen or done in my entire life. And Miles is... One of the nicest people I've met. Maybe we can get him on the podcast going forward. Who knows? We'll uh, shoot him a line and see what he says. But he is a very nice human being. His partner, Sylvie, is amazing to talk to as well. So kudos to them for all the success they've enjoyed together. And uh, The Shape of Water is awesome, as I've said on the podcast and the review episode, as I said on the episode with Quentin last time out, and as I'm saying now. So... All that to say, the Academy Awards bore some pretty awesome fruit this year for me, and I look forward to seeing what next year brings as well. As usual, though, we have movies to discuss, and I've decided to bring back my friend, Quentin Amundsen, who you all heard last week when we talked about the Academy Awards. You know, I actually haven't asked Quentin, now that I think about him, in the context of the podcast, I actually haven't asked him what his Oscar picks were like. You know what I mean? In terms of numbers, did he get better than 19? He did pick Blade Runner 2049 over War for the Planet of the Apes. 
But I, I do think he picked three billboards for best picture, and I picked The Shape of Water. So we'll see. I have to ask him. But anyways, Quentin joined me again for the review of Alex Garland's Annihilation. So let's get to our discussion with Quentin. Quentin, so we both saw Annihilation. So I know we were talking about it a little bit before uh, you came in the studio today. So just, I just want to get your first impressions on Annihilation, Alex Garland's Annihilation. I would have to say it's my favorite film of the year so far, and I would be very surprised if it did not end up among my 10 favorite films of the year. It's just uh, wonderfully cerebral, kind of like a movie we saw last year called Blade Runner 2049. It really... Uh, ponder some great questions about the nature of humanity, what drives humans to do the things that they do. Um, A really deep story about uh, just the sanctity of relationships, but you see it through this wonderful prism of one of the most unique scientific uh, classics that I've seen in quite some time. Uh, It really did kind of stay with me, like the characters, the plot. I had to spend so much time unpacking it show because I just really walked out of it amazed, but kind of curious and in awe of what I just saw, and I really didn't know what the point of everything was. It really was one of those movies that made me want to go on those websites to see, okay, well, what really happened at the end of the movie, and what does it all mean? I think if a movie does that, it's Asus, and it really did that to me. I, I, would, I would agree with that, honestly. I, I remember we, we watched the movie, and then the, the movie ends, and it ends on that kind of lingering shot with Natalie Portman. You see her eyes kind of change color. And and then it kind of just goes to the credits, and like even the credits are very like psychedelic. And mm-hmm. then you just kind of. I remember I was sitting there in the theater, and everyone. It was a packed theater. I saw it on a Saturday night. I saw the 10:30 p.m. showing on Saturday night, right after I was done work. And I kind of thought to myself, mm, I, don't, I didn't think the theater would be that busy. I thought maybe everyone would still be trying to see Black Panther or something. And it was packed. It was jam packed. There was not a single empty seat in this theater. And at the very end of the movie, when the credits start to roll, not a single person. You know, like in most movies, people kind of get up and they kind of start making their way to the exit and they kind of like, you know, they throw away the 3D glasses into the bin or whatever. No one really got up for a good like 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And I think they were, everyone was waiting for something to happen, like waiting to some kind of explanation. And and I think that's one of my favorite things about Annihilation is that, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was really weird. It was a weird movie, but I, I, I liked that it didn't necessarily hold your hand like you, you, you like we were talking about before you, you, it kind of leaves you to draw your own conclusions and so many uh, movies nowadays it just is really sort of point A to point B right. it's so direct uh, it really almost assaults you with what uh, <laughs> the meaning of the film what the directors want to get across it's such a refreshing uh, thing to go into a movie and really be able to make your own uh, assumptions about what it means and what uh, the characters are trying to get across and uh I definitely thought it was really because of the great work of the um, actors. I thought Natalie Portman um, was really a good um, sort of entry point into this world, Um, just being able to look at some of the uh, unique set pieces that they have here and getting to get a sense of how she uh, is able to uh, react to what she's seeing, the really weird things she's seeing in this place they call the Shimmer. It's just really great how we were able to experience uh, this really nutty world in a sense for her and uh it was great and if 
her performance wasn't really spot on and wasn't able to just be uh, completely spellbinding, it probably would not have had the impact that it had. But I think they picked the right woman to really be the front uh, piece for this film. I think one of the themes of the movie uh, tackled the idea of self-destruction, right? Humans self-destructing, people doing things to themselves, whether or not they mean it, right? I mean, you might necessarily, you might not necessarily rather do something on purpose, but it still might be harmful to you, right? And and uh, I think we saw that, they, they kind of tackled that a lot in the movie. And I, re- I really like that idea, you know, like Natalie Portman cheating on, his, on her husband. And, you know, we see uh, perhaps, perhaps you can then surmise the husband who we know knew about the the affair, like left to go on the suicide mission because he was hurt by his wife. And that's another form of self-destruction. Even in Ventress, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character talks about, um, talks about the concept when they're in that kind of booth in the middle of the field. And even, I almost feel like even, even that her, itself is a form of self-destruction because we later find out she has cancer. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I thought that was an interesting way of them, them the, the way they tackled it with kind of every character I thought that was a pretty cool way of doing that. Yeah, all four of the women were damaged. Like, one of them had uh, lost a kid early on to um, an illness. One of them had a relationship destruct. All of them were just willing to go into the abyss because uh, there really wasn't anything in the real world that was uh, good enough to tether onto. So they were really willing to take the plunge, and uh, especially, of course, the the Ventress um, who obviously had that debilitating cancer, she was just willing to go all the way to the lighthouse, the mysterious lighthouse where all the secrets uh, were um, going to be presented about the Shimmer. And, of course, uh, Natalie Portman, um, of course, was wondering um, what really would drive the previous people, including her husband, to uh, go to the Shimmer, which is this self-destructive place, but also extremely beautiful um, and it was uh, really kind of interesting to see what answers uh, were ultimately available for them. Let me ask this, Quentin. Did, did you uh, read the book that it was based on? I did not. Uh, I actually think I want to read the book now. Okay. Um, just I know that there were some differences, but mm. I think that's uh, something that I'm going to take a look at okay. to see how it stacks up. Yeah, like the, the, the author's name is Jeff Vandermeer, and I read the book... Um, I, I read the book because one of my, I got it for Christmas, maybe like a few months, or look, this this past Christmas, a few months ago, and uh, I guess one of my relatives, my, they know I like to read, so they got me a, got me this book. Uh, I, got, I, sh- I actually got the whole trilogy. It's a, it's called the Southern Reach Trilogy, um, and the first yeah. one's called Annihilation. Actually, I haven't finished, I only read the first one, I haven't read the second, the, the next two, but I, from, from the way the first book ends... I think, like, I don't think there's going to be a sequel to this movie. If I mean, outside of the way the movie ends itself, I don't think there's going to be a sequel also because we were talking about before, it doesn't seem to be doing that well at the box office, and I, I feel like it'd be hard for uh, another studio to greenlight a sequel to something like that. But th- that aside, I feel like the way they wrapped up, the they kind of took a lot from it, 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 what's implied to come in the next few books. But regardless, I, I, I do want to... I, I hope you do read the book because they changed... The, um, not the idea, I guess, the whole, the thing of the shimmer and going in and all that stuff is, it's very much the same, obviously, but one of the things they changed, um, very, that was a very fundamental part of the film was about what, why it's called Annihilation. And that I almost felt was one of my favorite parts of the book. And it wasn't in the movie at all. Like it wasn't even kind of in the movie. Just one line reference and it really didn't 
satisfy why that was the title of the the movie. So yeah. that is actually a good um, point. And uh, yeah, I am definitely going to read the book um, just to uh, get the the differences. And uh, yeah, I thought that that was one thing I was a little bit unsatisfied. I wanted them to go a little bit deeper there as to why uh, Annihilation was the concept. You know, like one of the weirdest parts of this movie or one of the most unnerving parts for me, and I know there were a lot of like, things that were kind of creepy and visually like stirring in this movie that were really cool um you know like the kind of exploded soldier on the wall and the the various mutated animals and flesh the, just happened to move yeah, all over yeah. the place that was yeah wow like there, there were really some really cool things but i will admit that that the scene where kane like cuts open his squad mate and you see the kind of like worm things in his like in his like in his chest like uh, now, I think for me, even more than like the bear that like screamed that human voices or whatever, even more than that, I almost feel like that worm body thing. It, it, it unnerved me so much. I didn't even really eat for the rest of the night. Like I wanted, I was hungry, and I was like, oh, my stomach kind of feels rumbly, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to like touch my stomach, and I'm kind of like, oh, thanks, thanks for that, Alex Garland. Like, I was thinking about that was the image that was steered into my brain when I was walking to the Osgood subway right. station <laughs> after the movie, and it just stayed with me on my like half hour commute there back home. And yeah, I don't think I ate uh, <laughs> the rest of that evening either. So thanks, Oscar Isaac. You definitely were one of the creepiest characters um, I've seen in a while and that's a compliment I like right. really you know like for this film uh, it's fantastic how um, yeah they were just able to unnerve me in a way that you know, not a, I don't think I've been unnerved by a movie uh, in quite the same degree in quite a while actually I yeah say. it was really it, they did a really good job with that okay my last question for you before we move on to the Oscars but uh, the ending can I feel like be left open to interpretation right uh, the ending I guess to sum it up Kane or is it Kane? You know, hugs Lena, and is it is it really Lena, right? And I I guess like it begs the question like what actually happened? Did was that Kane who kills himself in the video? Was it the copy who kills himself? Was it Lena that makes it out? And was it the copy of Lena that made you know? May, if it is the real Lena, like the original Lena, perhaps is is it really is it truly? Can you truly consider it? her if she's like evolved or mutated like because your mind has changed and then that begs the question like what what makes you re- what makes you you right so what do you what, what were your what was your take on the ending of annihilation i definitely think that it very well could have been um the original lena and it could have been the original um you know husband but of course they can't really be considered as the original because uh, Natalie Portman says that line, Shimmer, it changes you more than it destroys you and breaks you down. Uh, so I would have to say that it could have very well been um, uh, Lena 1.0 and uh, Husband 1.0. I'm just kind of blanking on the name there for a moment. Kane, Kane. Um, Kane, but you can't really say that they're original because they've been forever scarred by that experience. It looks like maybe um, the Kane and Lena might have a fresh start but it won't be the way it was before they both experienced the shimmer. That's no way of going back to where it once was in the past. That's fair. I, th- I think it's probably how I kind of saw it too. Maybe that is that is the quote unquote like original copies. But then again, you know, they're like you said, they're forever changed. And I guess that's kind of the point, right, of the of the movie that like all these things are altered. And I guess that was, that was a question that they, cause I mean, in, in a lot of alien movies, you're kind of like, why are the aliens here? What do they want? And, and I think they asked that question. And I think the answer was 
it, it doesn't even really want anything. It just, like, it, it just exists, right? So that was kind of fascinating. And maybe with the thing of self-destruction and annihilation, sometimes you could have a rebuilding, but into something new. Yeah. So that's maybe something that he wanted to add on there at the end to make us ponder that. Video game movies these days are such a unique idea in Hollywood, not because there are so few of them, and, you know, there are more getting made every day or every year, I should say, but it's because there are not really very many good ones. You know, we, we've seen so many video game movies over the years. We've seen, you know, back in the 90s, when the kind of the first ones came out, Super Mario Bros., with the scary-looking Bowser and the Fat Plumbers and Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat... You know, those kind of started it all, but it's never really been achieved in a critically and commercially successful way. You know, we had over the years, let's see, we had Prince of Persia with Jake Gyllenhaal, and that was, I actually kind of liked that movie, but it, it wasn't that great upon rewatching it. And then we had a few years ago, Warcraft and Assassin's Creed, and I'd probably say Warcraft is a little better than Assassin's Creed, but I mean, ultimately, they're both pretty crappy, right? So... It's just kind of surprising that in today's day and age of getting book adaptations and remakes of old movies that video games haven't been mined for more, I suppose. You know, that's there's so many video games out there that are basically movies themselves, right? Uncharted comes to mind, and we will get a an adaptation of that later on and with Tom Holland from Spider-Man. But the adaptation we're focusing on right now is the Tomb Raider one, right? And of course... We've already seen Tomb Raider movies with Angelina Jolie at the turn of the century, turn of the millennium. But uh, they rebooted this movie, and they're rebooting it in the sense that it's an adaptation of the 2013 video game by Square Enix, which was itself a reboot of the Tomb Raider video game series, right? So let's get into the review of Tomb Raider. Directed by Roar Uthaug from Norway. This is his first big budget kind of feature for Hollywood out west. He's in a lot of movies in Norway, it seems, before, but his big Hollywood movie. Uh, Tomb Raider is, you know, a pretty good movie. I don't want to call it an amazing film, but I will say, I will go out on a limb and say it's the best video game movie of all time. Ever. Best video game movie ever. But, I mean... Yeah, it's a pretty low bar, right? The pretty low bar for video game movies. I mean, video games have been made into movies before, like I mentioned kind of in the intro, and none of them have been good. None of them have been kind of good. Most of them have been really bad, right? We had last year, or the year before, rather, in 2016, like I mentioned, Warcraft and Assassin's Creed. They were so bad. Warcraft was better than Assassin's Creed, and Warcraft is still a shitty movie, Honestly, I'm just shocked. It, it still shocks me that video games don't get made into movies more often considering how much artistry goes into these video games, right? Anyways, I won't go too much onto that because we did talk about that a little bit before uh, coming into the music here, right? But like I mentioned before, Tomb Raider is adapted from Square Enix's 2013 game of the same name. And of course, if you're not familiar with Tomb Raider, very briefly, it's based on a video game series that follows adventurer Lara Croft as she travels the globe 
going on crazy adventures, and like you would imagine, she raids a lot of tombs along the way. Uh, of course, a lot of this is inspired by Indiana Jones. We have another video game series on Chari, which is basically the same thing, just with a guy instead of a lady. And Tomb Raider, of course, came first a long time ago. But uh, Square Enix saw fit to reboot the series in 2013, and I guess Hollywood decided to adapt that reboot into a movie, right? So here we are, Tomb Raider with Alicia Vikander, who is, of course, an Oscar winner. She won the Best Sporting Actress Oscar in 2013, or 2016, I'm sorry, for The Danish Girl with Eddie Redmayne, if you remember that one, right? So here we are. She is Lara Croft, the titular Tomb Raider, right? And I'll say that the best thing about this movie is that Alicia Vikander gives the portrayal of Lara Croft some some real depth, I think, you know? She manages to come across as a real badass when her limits are pushed to their extremes, and that's something I think they kind of lifted directly from the video game, right? Because the, the original, or not the original, but the 2013 reboot of this, that this film is based on is about a young, untested Lara Croft. She just graduated from university, and she goes off on a, on a kind of expedition. Her ship gets wrecked, and she wakes up on this island and kind of has to fend for herself, and she learns the skills that will go into her becoming the badass Tomb Raider that we see in the subsequent games and subsequent movies with the Angelina Jolie movies, right? And so when we see her here, she's just learning to become, you know, the quote-unquote Tomb Raider, and it's kind of it's, it's pretty interesting, honestly. You see, get to see her kill her first person, and it's it's not pretty, right? It's very ugly, and it involves a lot of grappling, and it's it's very like real. Kind of, kind of seems to be inspired by the Casino Royale, you know, when, when we see uh, in the very first, the very beginning of 2016 or 2006's Casino Royale with Daniel Craig, and we see kind of we see Bond kill a guy in the bathroom and he like drowns the guy in the sink and it's very gritty and it's black and white. It's, it's not black and white in this movie, but when we see Lara kill her first guy, it's, it's ugly, right? And, and she's drowning him in mud and she, and and, and she kind of gets up and she kind of experiences these heavy emotions. Anyway, it's a very, it's a very good way to get introduced to Lara, Lara rather. And she explores the pain behind the loss of her father, Richard, uh, pretty, pretty, she minds that pretty well, you know, it's a theme that drives the action of the entire film, it's one that'll be familiar to gamers, of course, as her absent father is, you know, often what drives her to greatness, and of course it's a trope that's pretty familiar, but I'll say this, the most glaring issue with Tomb Raider is a simple one, and it's just that the origin story is boring, it's boring and it's generic, and it's just, it doesn't hold viewers' attention, right? I mean, We'll put it this way. When Croft is gunning down assailants, she's shooting people with a bow and arrow. You know, she's doing the grappling, the mud thing. That's when the movie is so good. It's it's an action movie, right? I mean, it keeps the viewer invested in what she's doing and why she's doing it and, and how she's doing it, right? But anytime it stops, ask why. Anytime it gets away from the action and she's kind of explaining her motives via like exploring some clues or whatever, it grinds to a complete halt. And before we, the audience, get to see her doing any of those things in the first place, this movie, which is about, I would say, two hours or so, just a little over two hours, like two hours and five minutes or something like that, the movie takes almost a full half an hour, like 30 to 35 minutes, which is almost a quarter of the total movie to explain why she's in her current situation, right? Because the movie starts with you seeing Lara. She's not the she's not the Tomb Raider of legend, right? She is in this 
like she lives in no, I don't want to say squalor, but she's a like a food bike, like an Uber Eats kind of bike courier, and she, you know, lives in the kind of, you know, the so not suburbs even like the fringes of London, and she's like boxing, and she gets her ass kicked, and then you know she participates in something in some some bike race, and she gets hit by a car, and then someone has to bail her out at the police station. That's when you learn her connection to Croft Industries and so on and so forth, right? And it's just. Lara Croft is so famous, and it already is the subject of a really famous movie with Angelina Jolie, that it really begs the question, why devote so much time and energy to something that is decidedly not raiding tombs, right? I mean, that's what we all came to see. We all came here, came here to see her shoot people with arrows and shoot people with guns and blow things up and, like, jump and do all these crazy set-piece action things, right? And we don't see any of that. For a good 35 minutes. And it's kind of the, the the movie tries to kind of sate you at that bike race I mentioned. She's on a bicycle and they're all chasing her, and whoever wins gets like 600 pounds, 600 quid, apparently, as they call them. But I don't know. It just seems kind of like just, just get on with it. You know, that's that's how I kind of felt. Like just get on with it, make her get to the get to the island and do crazy stuff. I don't really care how she gets there. Just make her get there. Like they could have they could have achieved that with a quick voiceover. And they didn't. They made us sit sit through it and watch it. And of course, the big twist in the film is hardly a twist at all, partly because it happens like right after she gets to the island, pretty much. Like it happens what? Like she gets to the island, let's say 40 minutes in, and this big twist happens, I would say, 50 minutes in, right? And then this twist kind of follows her around for the rest of the movie. And it's just not a very good twist, right? It, it it does help her eventually at the end of the movie, as you would expect, hardens her into the Tomb Raider of legend, but it's just all very rote and kind of, it, it, like I said, it's generic and boring, right? Dominic West is uh, plays Richard Croft. We see him very often in flashbacks, and we see him a later, little later on in the movie as well, and I thought he does pretty good. He's, uh, you know, from The Wire, of course, and The Affair on TV, and he's a pretty good role as, as Richard, uh, Lara's father, and... I think I think his chemistry with both young actresses who played like young Lara because there was two I believe and the chemistry he has with Alicia Vikander. Um, spoiler: he the twist is that he is alive in the movie and then and then of course he dies at the end because he kind of has to right. Uh, but their chemistry is a highlight. And on the same note, Daniel Wu, who is boat captain Lou Ren, is Lara's method of transportation to the island. He kind of signs on because his own father, who Richard Croft. Lara's father contacted. He's also missing. So Daniel, or rather Lou Ren, decides to figure out what happened to his father with Lara. And they become friends once they arrive. And it's, it was pretty refreshing, I admit, to see a minority at as much screen time as he does. But those are the two kind of main characters that we see kind of before we get to the island. Um, there's a villain as well, of course. Every movie has to have a villain. Walton Goggins, uh, his villain Matthias Vogel, is pretty compelling as the leader of the evil organization Trinity, and he gives his character a pretty unique spin. I mean, he's obviously a psychopath, right? He has no compunctions killing people, but he makes it very clear that he wants to just find the object that he spent seven years searching for, but not because he believes in like the cause of Trinity or he believes in the supernatural, which is ostensibly what Trinity believes in. He just wants to get home to see his daughters. We see a picture of his daughters on his desk in the camp. We learn it. We learn about it on his very first on-screen appearance. The, the powers that be that run Trinity won't let him come home until the voice on the other end of his satellite phone answer. You know, it's pretty easy, oddly, almost easy how, how easy it is to feel sympathy for him until his very next scene where he shoots an old man dead because he was coughing 
and the coughing was holding up the indentured slavery he had been forced into by Vogel himself, right? So he just, like, that literally happens in the very next scene. You're like, oh, okay, this guy is a um, psychopath. And that's clearly what, like, they meant to show. But it was just funny. They set you up <laughs> to, like, feel sorry for him. And then he just shoots this guy dead for pretty much no reason in the next scene. And then anytime anything crazy happens, he's just out there capping random extras. And it's just pretty funny because, I mean, he is... An evil, crazy guy, right? Uh, like I mentioned, Dominic West is the father, and like I said before also, the twist is that he's alive on the island. He, he's not actually dead. And I think the reason that kind of, not that it bugged me, but it, it's really just that it kind of, it almost spells out the fact that he is going to die in this movie, right? Because we know, we, we think he's dead up until this point, and that they make a very big point about Lara being the sole inheritor and the sole CEO kind of candidate for the company of Croft Industries, and she refuses to sign the papers because she doesn't know for sure that her father is dead. He just disappeared seven years ago. She spent the last seven years kind of living in denial, and then when she gets hit by the, the car on the bike race early in the movie, the Anna, the kind of surrogate CEO, I guess, of the company comes to get her and she tries to convince her to sign the papers. She goes down there to sign the papers and finds a clue that leads to the island. And instead of just signing the papers to get to the island, Lara sells like her mother's trinkets at a pawnbroker, pretty entertaining part of the movie, actually, and gets the cash to go to this island off the coast of Japan, and then that's when the action starts, right? And then, of course, when her father dies basically in front of her in this movie, as you knew he would, she goes back, she signs the papers, and she becomes Lara Croft CEO, right? So I just kind of weirded me out that, like, they bother to do that at all, I guess, right? Because, I mean, she comes back from this expedition and with with nothing right i mean the only thing she got from raiding those tombs was closure and i guess that was the point but it just seemed kind of eh, like i could have done without it. it it was just a larger a smaller symptom rather of the larger problem which was that the story was boring you knew what was going to happen because it's hit all the plot points that every movie of action action movies have done before and it's, it wasn't original even if, and that, that wasn't even a part, I don't think, in the original video game, or even if it was, I don't remember because it was boring, honestly. The only other major issue would probably only be noticeable to someone who has played the video games, right? But the character of Lara Croft itself seems to have been slightly misunderstood. Not completely, just kind of like like a picture that's a little askew on the wall, right? That's kind of what it seems like to me in terms of how it stands out, right? Not a lot, but a little. But it bugs you when you notice it, Right. So Lara only goes to the island to find out what happened to her father. And once she gets there, it's explained that she never attended university. Natural fascination that kind of defines the original Croft, or fascination with antiquities, I should say, is kind of lacking. And it implies that all the knowledge she has about antiquities and stuff is simply explained away by having a weird and eccentric and brilliant father in Richard, right? He, I think there was a throwaway line where she, like, used to solve these Japanese box puzzle things that were left around the house because the father just, like, liked them, right? So that's how she knew to solve them, and that's how she knew to solve the puzzle that she, he leaves for her, so on and so forth. And it's even, even at the end of the film, when they kind of the action's all wrapped up, it's implied she's going to continue hunting tombs to stop the Trinity cult rather than actually wanting to go out and explore and discover things, right? So it kind of seems like she is a tomb raider, quote-unquote, only in name and not by intent. 
And it just seems a bit of a shame to cut that out completely, as that could have been a small detail that not only made her more interesting, but also added some heft to the, the inevitable sequel, right? Because this movie very brazenly goes out and is like, yeah, there's going to be a sequel to this movie, right? Which I suppose is probably for the best, right? Um, we'll see how much money this makes, because it just came out this past weekend, but... I, it, it was interesting to me how they kind of tackled that idea of Lara, maybe in between, maybe in between Tomb Raider one and two. You know, if they if there is a sequel, like I mentioned, she'll have gone to university and it'll it'll be revealed she's a genius. Because I mean, obviously she's incredibly intelligent, but it was just kind of weird not to. I mean, they could have easily said, "Oh yeah, I went to Cambridge or Oxford or whatever," and uh, uh, you know that's what led me to here. I don't know. It would just seem kind of weird, right? And especially because they lifted so much from the video game that in the video game itself, Lara herself is a college, a recent college graduate that goes on an expedition, right? So that's all they had to say. That's all they had. Like they could have, they lifted so much more. Why didn't they just do that? It just seemed kind of weird, right? But anyways, it's impossible to watch this movie, I should say, and also not feel as though a more modern Indiana Jones is unfolding on the screen. And like I mentioned before, none of these movies or video games would exist without it, but, you know, the deadly traps when you step on a kind of rock and like a spear kills you or the dramatic escape from the collapsing tomb and she's jumping, she uses a pickaxe from the video games, kind of cool. It, it evokes Spielberg's masterpiece in a pretty fun way, but all in all, the movie itself succeeds more than it fails, and it's largely in due part to having a bona fide star in Alicia Vikander anchoring those things, and everything else kind of just comes together around her, right? Her origins may be, you know, a little forgettable, but they still manage to provide some entertaining set pieces, even though it is pretty easy to catch yourself wondering what's after this, right? You kind of just want her to wrap things up on this island, all right, you know, get over your dad, defeat the bad guy, Stop the evil whatever from happening and then just get on a plane and go home so you can do it over again now that you're experienced, right? Because she even only gets the dual pistols at the end of this at the end of the movie. Like literally the last scene of the movie before credits roll or her getting her famous dual pistols. And they look exactly like they do in the video games and in the other movies even. But it was a bit of a shame that they tease you with, with this next sequel and there's, there hasn't been another one announced. So you can't just at the mercy of the, of the people making these movies, right? But anyway, so I, like I said, the movie succeeds way more than it fails. And in, in, in that sense, it is the best video game movie ever because those other movies, they fail and they fail and they fail and they fail and then they finish and they're like, oh, did you like it? And no, I didn't, right? Because you sucked. But uh, Tomb Raider is different, I think. And it does make me look forward to what we're going to get with Uncharted, with Tom Holland going forward. But honestly, as, as charismatic as Tom Holland is, this movie right now with Leisha Vikander is the kind of movie to beat, I think. So if you like video games, if you're a fan of the Tomb Raider movie, if you just want to see a fun movie, action-packed with fun dialogue and fun characters, then you know what? Go see Tomb Raider. But... You know, maybe wait for Tuesday cheap night, I would say. You know, looking back to when I saw Annihilation and Tomb Raider, so they're pretty similar in some ways, you know, two strong female leads kind of going out into the world and accomplishing some crazy stuff. Uh, of course, that's boiling, boiling it down so, so, so much. But, you know, they share some similarities and some fun coincidences, like Alicia Vikander, who is a star of Tomb Raider, like you know, uh, beat out Jennifer Jason Leigh, who is one of the stars with Natalie Portman of Annihilation for the Best uh, Supporting Actress in 2016. 
Alicia Vikander won for The Danish Girl, like I mentioned, and Jennifer Jason Lee was nominated for The Hateful Eight, and she was, I think she was the dark horse to win that year, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. No one else really had a good chance, you know. By the time the Oscars come around, those are pretty much set in stone, more or less, you know, but... I think for the most part, the, it was not that it was up fully in the air. I think Vikander was the favorite to win, but the dark horse, the kind of underdog who could possibly have won was Jennifer Le- Jason Leigh. Um, I think I put a bet on that, actually, now that I think about it. I actually put a number of bets on the Oscars this year, now that I'm thinking about it. I, I bet on, let's see, this is when the odds first came out, so I got some pretty good odds, relatively speaking, on these bets, considering they came out like right when all the awards were, not, were announced, rather, so... Let's see, I, I bet on The Shape of Water to win Best Picture, and I hedged it with a three billboards bet on Best Picture as well. I bet on Allison Janney to win for I, Tonya. I bet on Gary Oldman for The Darkest Hour, Frances McDormand for Three Billboards, Coco for uh, Best Animated Picture, and I want to say... Oh, oh, and I bet on... Uh, Call Me By Your Name for Best Adapted Screenplay. So I won all of those except for the three billboards. And I believe it was something like three billboards paid out like a dollar more or two dollars more than The Shape of Water or would have paid out two dollars more than The Shape of Water did pay out. But because I won on all the other bets, it basically covered that tiny loss. So I think I actually made about $10, $15. Not a lot. I'm not a huge better, um, admittedly. I bet on quite literally one or two things a year, and one of those two things are the Oscars, right? The other thing is maybe the occasional Super Bowl prop bet, you know, like how long is the national anthem going to take, or which co- which side is the coin going to come up on? You know, funnily enough, not on uh, the Super Bowl, but I, I think it was earlier this offseason for the NFL, it was something like the San Francisco 49ers and the Oakland Raiders, and of course, funnily enough, San Francisco and Oakland are like right across the bay from one another, right? But the 49ers and Raiders finished with the exact same kind of standings, and so in the draft order, when they're determining who gets what pick in the draft, the the 49ers and the Oakland Raiders were tied, so they had to go to the next tiebreaker, and they were tied on that too. So they went to the next tiebreaker, they were tied on that as well. They went to the next tiebreaker, I think they were tied on that as well. So how do they solve it? They flipped a coin. And you might be interested to know, I know this has nothing to do with movies. I just thought this was interesting considering we were talking about the Super Bowl prop bet things, but I thought it was hilarious that the 49ers were favored in the coin flip. How is that even possible? You're flipping a coin. Shouldn't they both be 50-50? Isn't that how coin flips work? You know, there's not, it's not favored to land on one side of the coin. One side of the coin isn't heavier than the other. That made me laugh. I have to admit that, that I had a good laugh over that, but I think uh, in the end, the 49ers actually did win, funnily enough, much to the chagrin of new Raiders and I guess an old Raiders head coach, uh, John Gruden. But anyways, back to movies. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. I haven't reviewed A Wrinkle in Time. I'm hoping to do that with the next episode. Uh, Pacific Rim Uprising is coming out. Red Sparrow is in theaters now. And of course, Ready Player One video games and all that jazz is going to be out as well at the end of the month. So all of those movies are going to get on the next few podcasts. I promise you that. And I'm very excited for Ready Player One. Not because I think the book was some masterpiece of, of literature. I mean, honestly, the book was pretty much the like nostalgia of the book or look what I know, the book by the author. And it wasn't exactly amazing, but 
it was relatively entertaining. I enjoyed reading it. I got most of the references and not to say like, yo, look how smart show is. No, I just mean, you know, I played a lot of video games and I watched a lot of movies when I was a kid. And I mean, a lot of the music references and some of the older video games from the early eighties, I had no clue about, but a lot of the more popular ones, I'm sure most people who read it probably got those anyway. So not bragging, I promise, but yeah, you know, it was okay. Uh, I am excited to see the movie though, because it looked like they kind of aged up the movie, if that makes sense. Like before all the re- movie references were like Mario and Indiana Jones and Star Wars. Not that I'm complaining, but it looks like they aged things up to include modern day video games. So there's like Halo and Overwatch and, you know, Gundams, which was actually in the original one. The Iron Giant is pretty prominent, so on and so forth, right? So anyways, those are the movies that will be on the next podcast. But for now, thank you for listening. This has been episode 18 of the Showtime Movie Podcast. Good night. Oh, 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 oh,